Hello, everyone, and welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is Amy, and this is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of music, politics, and culture. Today, we examine the labor chaos of the 70s and take a look at what music had to say about all of that. First, I would like to thank you if you are a returning listener, and especially if you had taken the time to rate the show or give it a review. You have helped a whole lot of new listeners find us. Thanks for giving this one woman, one mic show a try if this is your first time. And hey, a special shout out to my fellow 70sologist Jim for that wonderful review that you left earlier this month. Labor in the 70s, it was tumultuous. Strikes were happening left and right on a level not seen since the 1940s. Not long ago, I watched the first four episodes of All in the Family, season five, which originally aired in 1974. They were about Archie Bunker's union going on strike and the difficulties that the family had in making enough money to put food on the table. This is not a story arc for a sitcom, nonetheless, that could have been as compelling at any other time than the 70s, because it really was straight out of the headlines. One of the best movies of the 70s, Norma Ray, is about a woman played by Sally Field who leads the fight for her small-town southern mill to unionize after her dad dropped dead on the job. Auto workers went on strike. Farm workers went on strike. Grape pickers, led by Cesar Chavez, got Americans to boycott grapes for five years between 1965 and 1970. Miners went on strike. Factory workers went on strike. Even postal workers went on strike. There is hardly any dispute in the administration, the post office department, or among the business critics of the strike that the postal workers' grievances are real. A letter carrier, no matter where he lives, starts at a salary of $6,176 a year. If he lasts 21 years, he may receive a top income of $8,442. For the first time ever, letter carriers went on strike and mail service in and out of New York was suspended. The government immediately obtained a court order against the strike, and union leaders ordered the carriers back to work. Many refused. I don't like to go on strike, but we must, because they've been pussyfooting too long. You can't live in New York City on what they're giving us. I've been told I'm eligible for welfare, but I don't want to take welfare. We want to work, but this is the only means we have of letting Congress know that we cannot take it any longer. Either they give us what we should have, or we will stay out on strike until hell freezes over. In New York City and in some parts of Connecticut and New Jersey, the letter carriers are still carrying no letters. Their strike is illegal, but there is not much the government can do about it. A postal official was asked, what about the mail now lying in the street boxes and the post offices? And he said it would just lie there. Well, he was asked, what about perishables? And he said they will just have to perish. In Jefferson Cowie's New York Times article called That 70s Feeling, he reported that 2.4 million Americans participated in a strike just in 1970. Cowie also wrote a very interesting book on the subject of labor chaos in the 70s called Staying Alive, the 1970s and the Last Days of the Working Class, which you should definitely check out if the topic interests you. However, I'm not as interested in the label working class as I am about work itself and music's connection to the work and workers of the 70s. 
Certainly some of the 70s labor unrest and the strikes were led by younger people who were used to organizing in the 60s, and now it's time to go to work and they don't like their pay or they don't like their benefits or they just find their jobs to be very unsatisfying, dull most of the time. So they take to organizing with the union or they were Vietnam vets and they were not about to be forced to accept substandard working conditions or low pay or were just not afraid to stand up to their boss. Cowie wrote about a famous strike in Lordstown, Ohio, at a General Motors auto factory, where what he described as a young, hip, and interracial group of workers went on strike for three weeks in 1972. They were not on strike for more money, but because of job dissatisfaction and wanted, quote, more control over what was then the fastest assembly line in the world. Cowie said that Newsweek called the strike the Industrial Woodstock. Now, the history of unions in the United States is quite controversial, but it's also, it's essential to the American story. There was a time when unions had tremendous influence on national politics. It meant something to get a union endorsement if you were running for office. Unions have been behind most, if not all, of what we workers consider fundamental rights, such as the five-day work week, uh, paid leave. However, critics of unions argue that they are just another corrupt political machine, a la Jimmy Hoffa, or argue that union benefits come at the expense of non-union workers. That controversy makes unions and labor a very compelling topic if a songwriter chose to wade in, which is what the mostly Canadian band, the band, is going to do in 1969. Now, the band had a very tall order when it had to follow up its debut album, Music from the Big Pink, in 1968. And I would say it was mission accomplished with its second album, simply called The Band. That album was released in September 1969, and it has some classics on it. Um, I talked about The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down way back on episode three of this very podcast, so you should definitely check that out if you want to learn more about that song. King Harvest Has Surely Come was never released as a single, but it is as it is as interesting lyrically and musically as any song on the album. It is about a farmer in the Dust Bowl era of the 1930s who joins the union, but it still feels timely and important in 1969 in light of all the struggles of farm workers. That was an era in which there was a lot of hope that Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and the Filipino activists would make things better for the farm workers when they helped the farm workers organize. Here are some of Robbie Robertson's lyrics. I work for the union because she's so good to me, and I'm bound to come out on top. That's where she said I should be. I will hear every word the boss may say, for he's the one who hands me down my pay. Looks like this time I'm going to get to stay, I'm a union man now, all the way. Corn in the fields, and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King Harvest is surely come. I work for the union, cause she's so good to I'm bound to come out on top 
Robbie Robertson said of this song, it's just a kind of character study in a time period. At the beginning, when the unions came in, they were a saving grace, a way of fighting the big money people, and they affected everybody from the people that worked in the big cities all the way around to the farm people. It's ironic now because so much of it's like gangsters, assassinations, power, greed, insanity. I just thought it was incredible how it started and how it ended up. I think he might be referring to the Teamsters and Jimmy Hoffa there. Character study is an interesting way to describe a song. If there is any genre that is rooted in the telling of people, it is country music. And there's no question that the band, by the way, has a country flavor to its brand of rock. Country also has the image of appealing to the so-called common man. Eric Siegel, who was writing for the Baltimore Sun in 1992, wrote about country music's history of courting the working class, although we might make a case for that being the white working class. And he lamented the lack of substance in country music of the early 1990s. Siegel said by that time, country music had so-called turned its back on the people that it used to actually write about. Um, It had turned its back on the working class. He also seemed somewhat reluctant to admit that 70s country music did at least this much to maintain some level of authenticity. Now, when I think of a 70s country song about work, I think about Take This Job and Shove It. Sandra Ivey wrote an article for the Tennessean in Nashville in December of 1977, which is the year that Take This Job and Shove It came out. When scholars of the future study working conditions of the 1970s, they may turn to a popular country record rather than to textbooks on sociology and economics. And she was right. Look at that. Here I am doing just that very thing. Now, a month before Ivy's article was published, Bill Hance, who was writing for the Gannett News Service uh, in November, he wrote that Johnny Paycheck was becoming the voice of the working man solely because of Take This Job and Shove It. It sold 55,000 copies, that means records, kids, in 10 days. Ron Norwood, who was the program director for KMPS in Seattle, said that the record was so popular right out of the gate in part because it was, quote, strike season in Seattle. 17,000 Boeing workers were a month into a strike, and auto auto mechanics up there had been on strike since May. Now, Paycheck said that he considered himself working class and that he had had some pretty bad jobs before, so he understood how fans of the song felt. Now, given that Johnny Paycheck had lived in the backseat of his car when he moved from Nashville to Los Angeles in 1967, he seems to be a credible source on this. He said that he performed simply to eat and that it finally took the intervention of some friends after three years of essentially being homeless to get his music recorded. Now, he did not write this song. David Allen Coe did, but Johnny Paycheck could definitely relate. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. A woman done left and took all the reason I was working for. You better not try to stand in my way as I'm walking out the door. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. 
Take This Job and Shove It was released in October 1977. That's Johnny Paycheck's only number one hit, one of many great songs written by David Allen Coe. Look, radio stations were having kind of contests, if you will, opening up the lines, uh, asking people to call in and say why they hated their jobs. Now, in today's social media age, that does not seem like a very big deal, but it definitely was then to have a public forum to express your frustration about your job. Now, I have not known exactly what to do with uh, Bruce Springsteen in this conversation. Uh, Yes, he is most definitely associated with the working class. But in the 1970s and beyond, a lot of his fans were guys in three-piece suits. Now, Springsteen himself never worked in a factory. His dad did, but he did not. He's been a musician since the Beatles' plane landed in New York in 1964. Ed Gorman, who was a wonderful fiction writer, also wrote a column about Springsteen in 1981. And it was about this paradox between Springsteen's subjects and the appearance of his fans. He wrote that what Springsteen was really tapping into was the melancholy of the guys, and it was primarily guys, who grew up working class but weren't anymore. Maybe they even they felt a little guilty so Gorman suggested that Springsteen concerts were kind of like their confessionals. That kind of makes sense to me. I mean, do you really need to be working class to write about working class? Do you need to be a coal miner's daughter to write that song like Loretta Lynn did around the same time that Robbie Robertson wrote King Harvest Has Surely Come? I think that Springsteen's appeal is in the broad themes of the so-called common man, many of whom are working class. And maybe that is about work. I think that the label of working class rock really got solidly attached to Bruce Springsteen later in 1984 with Born in the USA. In 1978, though, Springsteen was finally out of the legal mess with his former manager, and he released Darkness on the Edge of Town. On that album is a song for his dad, who was a factory worker. It is not among his most well-known songs, and it was not a radio hit, but this is a bit of factory. Walks out in the morning lights The work that 
I'll bet Springsteen fans know that one, even if it was never a radio hit. Hey, have you, Springsteen fans, have you heard Lucinda Williams cover that song? Early in the morning, factory whistles, man rises from bed and puts on his clothes. He takes his lunch and walks out. In the morning light, it's the working, the working, it's the working light. Through the mansions of fear, through the mansions of pain, I see my daddy walking through them factory gates in the rain. Factory takes his hearing, factory gets him life. Is the working, the working, just the working I'd say that is the epitome of haunting, uh, a beautiful cover of Factory by Lucinda Williams. In the 1970s, about 25% of workers worked in a factory. Not anymore. That number has been steadily declining since the 90s, and it's about 8% now. And I would caution anyone about getting too excited about any reports about the number going up until you find out what those jobs pay. Factory jobs used to be more than minimum wage work, uh, but with the decline of the union, that's not automatically the case anymore. As we get into the late 70s, baby baby boomers have brought their love of rock with them. Perhaps some of that has filtered into their Gen X children who are now old enough to buy music. We definitely see a lyrical shift in rock in the late 70s, in the forming of what has come to be called Heartland Rock. We start to see songs about work carve out some space among the songs about love and sex and relationships. Bob Seger, who was from Michigan, built a career around singing about the struggles of the blue-collar worker and their lives. He wrote this in 1978. I take my card and I stand in line to make a buck I work overtime. Dear Sir Letters, keep coming in the mail. I work my back till it is racked with pain. The boss can't even recall my name. I show up late and I'm docked. It never fails. I feel like just another spoke in a great big wheel, like a tiny blade of grass in a great big field. To workers, I'm just another drone. To Ma Bell, I'm just another phone. Take my car! 
That is Feel Like a Number. Uh, that's on the Stranger in Town album by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. That was not a big radio hit either as far as chart performance goes. I didn't even make it into the top 40, which I find very hard to believe. Uh, but it may have received a boost from being on the soundtrack to the movie Body Heat in 1981. And it's had a very long life on classic rock radio stations, I think because people can relate to that concept. We even see references to working hard and struggling to get ahead within songs about relationships. So not just carving out space separate from them, but within them. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers released the album Damn the Torpedoes in the fall of 1979. And Here Comes My Girl is on that album. Mike Campbell and Tom Petty wrote that song. And the lyrics go in part, Every now and then I'm down to the end of the day and I have to stop and ask myself why I've done it. And it just seems so useless to have to work so hard and nothing ever really seems to come from it. You know, sometimes I don't know why, but this old town just seems so hopeless. I ain't really sure, but it seems I remember the good times with just a little bit more in focus. as a single in April of 1980 and barely made a dent on the charts. Again, hard to believe because it's such a staple of classic rock. Uh, it didn't come anywhere near the top 40, but that's Here Comes My Girl from Damn the Torpedoes. You know, you know, work songs are not just the domain of rock and country. One of the classic comedies of the 1970s is the movie Car Wash, which starred two of the decade's greatest comedians, Richard Pryor and George Carlin. The movie is raunchy and it is hilarious and it is quite literally about working at a car wash. What's really interesting to me about Car Wash, though, is that the soundtrack was written first. And what a soundtrack this was. Norman Whitfield, a musical legend who helped create Motown and was responsible for some of the funky soul of the early 70s, like uh, The Temptations' Ball of Confusion, he produced this album. The band Rose Royce cemented their place in 70s music history with this double album, which includes I Want to Get Next to You, I'm Going Down, and of course, the title track, Car Wash. 
car wash on your playlist for your wedding, you might want to go back and rethink your musical priorities. Just just a suggestion. Uh, car Wash, the single, was a number one pop and R&B hit in 1976. And Car Wash, the album, won a Grammy in 1977 for best soundtrack or score. But this was not the only disco hit about work. And I'm going to say that probably not the biggest of the movie soundtracks of the 70s. That's coming with Saturday Night Fever. I have said before that the movie Saturday Night Fever did not age well, in my opinion. And in my John Travolta trilogy of Saturday Night Fever, Grease, and Urban Cowboy, Saturday Night Fever is definitely the hardest to watch. Still, it is worth a reminder that this is a working class movie. Tony Manero, of course, played by John Travolta, Forgets all about his troubles, uh, about not living up to his family's expectations and his boring job at the hardware store by going dancing. And of course, the dancing is disco. I could, maybe I will, uh, do an entire episode on the effect of Saturday Night Fever on disco. Uh, For now, go back and check out the very first episode of this podcast, Disco Doesn't Suck. But for now, uh, suffice to say that the movie pushed disco into the mainstream all the way into the mainstream, which may not have been a good thing for disco. Do you understand the lyrics to Staying Alive? It's okay to admit, if you don't, uh, let's take a look. Well, you can tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man, no time to talk. Music loud and women warm. I've been kicked around since I was born. And now it's all right, it's okay, and you may look the other way. We can try to understand the New York Times effect on man. So the message, look the other way while life kicks me around. And then there's this, life going nowhere, somebody help me, somebody help me, yeah. Life going nowhere, somebody help me, I'm staying alive. Yeah. 
written and performed by the Bee Gees, the second of six number one singles in a row by the Bee Gees in 1978. It has more accolades than I can count, not the least of which is a Song of the 20th Century designation by the Recording Industry Association of America. It is one of Rolling Stone Magazine's top 500 songs of all time. And it is really kind of, as Barry Gibb puts it, a desperate song. It's about working and it's about surviving. In 1973, on average, American women made 57 cents for every dollar earned by men in the workforce. It was even worse for non-white women. This same year, a group of 10 women who worked in offices around Boston were tired of being disrespected and underpaid. They were tired of being asked to get the coffee, run personal errands for their bosses, and still do the same job as their male colleagues without the same pay as their male colleagues. Often women were even expected to train their male colleagues who might go on to make six-figure salaries while the women made 100 bucks a week. These women formed an organization called Nine to Five, which still exists, although its headquarters are now in Cleveland. Miriam Luce said in an article published in the Boston Globe in 1974 that when she brought up the fact to her boss that it was unfair that she made $150 a week uh, at their local law firm, and then he made $650, he said, the only rights you've got are the ones we give you. Such was the attitude toward women at the time. The 9 to 5 organization grew and they advocated for protection for women, such as the Family Medical Leave Act, which is what protects women and men when they need to take time off to say, oh, I don't know, have a child and not lose their job. They advocated for the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which makes gender gender discrimination in pay for the same jobs illegal and it allows women to sue if the law is not followed. Uh, They're part of many other important uh, reforms for women in the workforce. Karen Nussbaum was one of the founders of 9to5. She has a friend from their anti-Vietnam War activism days, Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda got the idea for a movie about three women who get fed up with their sexist boss. Jane Fonda would go on to star in that movie with Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton, who was making her acting debut, and the movie is called 9 to 5. And it's about uh, how women, these three women, have to cover up the kidnapping of their boss, and they cover it up by uh, running the office better than he ever could. That's That's a really short version of what the movie's about. Dolly Parton may have had the best line of the entire movie right here. So you've been telling everybody I'm sleeping with you, huh? No. Well, that explains it. That's why these people treat me like some dime store no, floozy. No, they think not. I'm screwing the boss. That's not it at all. Oh, and you just love it, don't you? It gives you some sort of cheap thrill, like knocking over pencils and picking You're up right, papers. Now, let's don't get excited. Get your scummy hands off of me. Look, I've been straight with you from the first day I got here, and I put up with all your pinching and staring and chasing me around the desk because I need this job, but this is the last straw. All right, now, wait. Let's, let's, let's just sit down. And... Look, I got a gun out there in my purse, huh. and up to now I've been forgiving and forgetting because of the way I was brought up, but I'll tell you one thing. If you ever say another word about me or make another indecent proposal, I'm going to get that gun of mine. And I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. 
Dolly Parton, who I have to say, national treasure, also wrote and performed the oh-so-iconic movie theme song to 9 to 5. Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five Released in 1980, uh, 9 to 5 went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1981. Dolly Parton won a Grammy for Country Song of the Year and Female Country Vocal Performance for that song in 1982. I have to also take a minute here and just give a plug for another podcast. If you are a fan of Dolly Parton, you will definitely want to go check out Dolly Parton's America. The title of that podcast, by the way, is borrowed from a class at the University of Tennessee called Dolly Parton's America. Uh, How lucky are those students to get to take a class like that? So ultimately, what singers and songwriters were doing in the 70s is reminding our workforce that they mattered. That is also why these songs have the staying power that they do. It is not pure nostalgia. The vast majority of us are part of this workforce And for better or worse, we can relate. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, tell someone and leave a nice rating or review wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. Bye for now. 